This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello and welcome to History for Weirdos. We're your hosts, Andrew and Stephanie. And each week, we're going to take you on a journey into the strange, obscure, and relentlessly entertaining corners of human history. Now listen up, friends, because it's about to get weird. Beautiful history nerds, welcome to episode 108 of History for Weirdos. And even though spooky season is technically over now, we are still going to be bringing you the weird content. As you guys should expect by this point. (laughs) Yes, by episode 108, you should expect some strange things for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely, definitely. Also, before we jump right into this episode, I want to mention that our trip for next year is coming up. And if you, for you who don't know, we're going to Rome and Florence in April of 2024. Now the deadline is very quickly approaching. It's Mm -hmm. December 18th, 2023. So if you want to join us on this trip, which um, I'm a little biased, but I think you should. Yeah. (laughs) You definitely want to sign up as quickly as possible. Yep. Because that is the drop dead date. Once that date passes, you can't sign up anymore. Yeah. So join us. Uh, sign up by December 18th. And if you have any questions, uh, you can always shoot us an email. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll respond. Okay, now that that's over, Steph, what do you have to regale us this week? Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about a psychological condition that has some bizarre symptoms. It honestly sounds fictional. Psychology and bizarre. That's like right up your alley. Yeah, I thought so too. I actually stumbled upon this condition just doing some random like personal research for fun and wanted to share a bit of the history of it oh nice i'm intrigued in essence in this condition people believe that they're walking corpses so they're like zombies yeah kind of like they think they're zombies so people think that they're zombies are they actually zombies though no they're not (laughs) i feel like that was a philomena kunk type of question there (laughs) yeah philomena kunk What did I even say? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But I knew what you meant. Thank you. So I do want to say before we jump in, I'm excited to share this topic with you all. And I think abnormal psychology is really interesting. I don't ever want it to appear like we're poking fun at anyone that has this syndrome or any other psychological disorder. Let's never blame, judge, or shame anyone with any sort of illness, right? That's definitely like the therapist in you. Of course. I think that's I appreciate so, that, though. Yeah, I think it's really important. I just want to share how endlessly fascinating I think the brain is and pull in some history of this lesser-known condition. Man, this is really like a, a fusion of your two worlds. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I hope you enjoy it. I'm excited, yes. So now, on to the story. Today, we're going to be discussing the history of Cotard delusion, 
also known as Cotard's syndrome or walking corpse syndrome. It's a rare and unusual neuropsychiatric disorder characterized by the delusional belief that a person is dead or decaying. Is this incredibly rare? Yeah, I'll get into that a little bit more. But there's a reason that you haven't heard of it. It's not super common. Yeah. It was named after the first psychiatrist to identify the patterns of this disorder, Jules Cotard. And I'll tell you a bit about him as well. So Jules Cotard was a French neurologist and psychiatrist who was best known for uncovering this syndrome. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about him. He was born on June 1st, 1840. So he was a Gemini, in case you were wondering. I was not even a little bit wondering, to be honest. It means he's probably really good at communicating. He's probably really adaptable. He was an air sign. Um, (laughs) He was born in... Isodon, France. I've never heard of this place. Oh, Alan, you know a lot about France. Yeah. If you are listening from Isodon, tell us. Tell us what it's like. Please do. I'm (laughs) very interested. So he studied medicine in Paris, and he did his internship at the Hospice de la Selpetrière. I have no idea if I said that That right. That was a really good French accent. So I'm going to say you 100% said that correctly. Thank you. I'll take it. This hospital actually remains a teaching hospital at La Sorbonne today. It's a part of France's public health system. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, it looks really beautiful. I saw pictures. As an intern, Cotard studied under another historical figure in the field, Jean-Martin Chacot, who studied very famously hypnosis and hysteria. And once I learned that, I was like, we're going to have to go on a side quest here. Okay, so side quest on... (laughs) The second French dude. Yeah, the second I was, French dude. I already dude. forgot his name because it was just so out there. It was so French. Jean-Martin Charcot is in English. How you so G- like John Murta Charcot? No. Okay. <laughs> that was, okay. Continue on then. So in this side quest, I do want to give a brief note on hysteria. Hysteria is a term that broadly means someone is having unmanageable emotional dysregulation. This means their emotions seem out of control or this person feels out of control. In the 19th century, however, it was a very sexist diagnosis, first considered a physical illness and then later a mental one because it was believed that women were predisposed to being overly emotional due to their sex. One of the common signs of having hysteria was if a woman chose not to get married. Oh, wow. Yeah hysterical notable figures such as sigmund freud and charcot this guy's mentor dedicated their careers to researching hysteria and this is what happens when you just have one type of perspective in the field right these are men these are european men of a certain social class that means that you begin to pathologize things that are completely normal like having feelings Mm. and not wanting to get married or have kids right yes (laughs) i love that they pathologize that (laughs) (laughs) currently most doctors most i would say a vast majority but not all most doctors practicing medicine do not accept hysteria as any sort of diagnoses i Uh, really hope not yeah that kind of blanket term of hysteria through time and through research and through just diversity of thought within the field Mm -hmm. 
eventually became fragmented into a myriad of medical conditions like epilepsy, histrionic personality disorder, disassociative disorders, and just other medical conditions. But regardless of this obvious bull, Jules Cotard's mentor, Charcot, he remains one of the, quote, founders of modern neurology. Oh, wow. Even though that's really what he based his research on hypnosis and hysteria. So kind of like how like Sigmund Freud is like a a father of like modern psychology, even Mm -hmm. though most of his stuff's been debunked. Yes, exactly. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting to think because yes, like they garnered interest in the field, but they gave us wrong information. Yeah. Like I guess I'm a little sympathetic to that only because it's like, it was their trailblazing. They had no idea, but then, so they're like, Mm-hmm. their hypotheses were just completely wrong. Yeah. Yeah, but I guess it depends. And I, you uh, clearly you'll know much better than I do, but like, was it hypotheses or were they just like literally basing their, their not even findings, I would say, but their hypotheses as fact? I think in the case of hysteria, it truly was just male, quote, medical professionals saying, oh, this is like, this woman's having emotions. It's a medical condition. Oh, wow. So it's literally just like ascribing. Yeah. Like symptom ascribing to. That's disorder. not how I would emote in this situation or women should want to have kids. So there's something wrong with her. Oh, wow. So they didn't really do a lot of critical thinking. No. Okay. But I'll get, it's a good question because I'll get to more of like what this psychology and psychiatry looks like at, at this time period. And by the way, I just want to clarify when I said like, I did, sounds like they did do a lot of critical thinking. I wasn't even being passive aggressive. I was just purely making an observation. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I totally agree. But let's get back to Cotard. So after receiving his medical degree in 1868, Cotard worked in various Parisian hospitals and over time was becoming like a pretty well-known person in neurology and psychology. Nice. Or I'm sorry, psychiatry. Okay. Because he did have a medical degree. And when he was active in this in the late 19th century, the field of psychology was undergoing significant developments and transformations, as we've already alluded to. This is considered the era when modern psychology began to take shape. So it's like, They're in their psychology era, as the Gen Z would say. Oh, very nice. (laughs) Before this period, psychology was often intertwined with philosophy. And it focused more on like introspection and theoretical discussions like, oh, like what what is morality? What is right and wrong? Like that type of thing. So you're saying like psychology and philosophy at this point are very intertwined. Before this period, yeah. Oh, before this period, sorry, yeah. Mm -hmm. And during this time, psychology started to shift towards using more scientific methods Mm. and more empirical approaches. Also during this time, many psychologists, including uh, Jules Cotard, had backgrounds in medicine and were treating individuals with mental illnesses, so there wasn't as much of a distinction between a psychiatrist and a psychologist like there is today. Got it. Like today, for folks that may not know, a psychiatrist can prescribe medication. A psychologist cannot. Yeah. Psychologists and psychiatrists, however, can do a lot of assessments on people. Right, because psychiatrists went to med school. Psychologists didn't. Yeah. Psychologists, in the U.S. at least, this isn't the case everywhere, do have doctorates, but not a medical doctorate. Right. It's weird. 
That's so weird. And it is weird that it varies country to country. Yeah. Also at this time, we have these two major schools of thought that I'm not going to bore you guys with too much. I'm just going to give you a general <laughs> summary. Is This is your ancient Rome, I think, is psychology, especially Aww. abnormal psychology. I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. So there's structuralism, which comes first. Mm-hmm. And it's associated with figures like um, Wilhelm Wundt. Oh, Wilhelm Wundt. Yeah, he's a big, big um, father in the field, I guess. Faza. Did my German imp- impression throw you off? Yeah. <laughs> Wilhelm. <laughs> yeah. Really Guys, did. it's okay. I have Germanic ancestry. I can do this. Oh, my God. So structuralism aimed to understand the structure of the mind, which sounds like, okay, that's really smart. But <laughs> it did it through introspection, mostly. Oh, right. And it sounds cool, but the issue here is that a lot of these studies weren't very reliable, right? There's yeah. not high levels of reliability. That makes sense. They're they're not really controlling for variables. They can't like replicate this. Yes, exactly. But the idea of like, oh, what's going on with the brain? Like, where's the brain and the mind connected, right? Because the mind is kind of consciousness and the brain is the structure. Right. That's really important. That is important, yeah. The other school of thought that comes after is functionalism. This was championed by a researcher known as William James, and it focused on the purpose of consciousness and behavior. Basically, that means it looks at how the mind functions and adapts. Okay. Functionalism focused on the individual differences of the brain in terms of human behaviors, like why do we not all act the same when put in the same situation? And I think Cotard's work would fall more into this camp. Like, why under these conditions is this person behaving in this way? Okay, so would you say that's a little bit more scientific than the former one? I think so. I'm not 100%. I think they did use more... I don't know how they coded their data, but I think they were looking for more patterns and data that they could observe. You don't think they used Excel back then, did they? (laughs) Pivot tables, for sure. (laughs) I don't even know what a pivot table is. Oh, my... (laughs) Oh my God, the data in per, like professional me is going nuts. I've just heard you use that word before. Oh, oh. <laughs> okay, we're moving on. Go on, go on. So at this time, we do have psychiatric treatment. Oh, and I'll, that's all I'll say about the structuralism and the functionalism. Fair. But at this time, we do have psychiatric treatment. However, as I've said in other episodes, <laughs> it typically involves things that were that are outdated and ethical questionable oh boy Uh, are we gonna get into it just very briefly there's a lot of like use of restraining people um isolation these tactics were used even like in the 60s this sounds like is it like 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 almost like a really perverse sort of game is it a war crime or is it psychological therapy from back in the day yeah right right a lot of like hosing people down when they're having a psychotic episode like how is that gonna help anyone i don't know it sounds i mean some of these things are like borderline against the geneva convention (laughs) and they're like we're helping them i swear (laughs) it's terrible um psychiatric asylums where a lot of this behavior would happen were very common in the western world at least i don't think as much in the east Uh, and patients with mental disorders received these like quote treatments and then I put including hydrotherapy, which, well, that sounds cool. Like you go swimming. No, you're basically waterboarded. Um, 
And then electroshock therapy was another common one. One of my favorite painters, Vincent van Gogh, was in in Asylum. But I think his Asylum was actually fairly chill. I think he did face a lot of isolation. But the priest that ran it, as priest, not doctor, the priest that ran it uh, really encouraged their recreational activity. So he really encouraged van Gogh to paint. Oh, wow. Very ahead of his time. Yeah. That is much more therapeutic. Of course. Encouraging people to be creative, to get outside, to walk around. That was his school of thought. As a non-medical professional, he was closer to what's actually good treatment. That's so f- sad. I was going to say funny, but I mean, it is funny purely from like looking in the past, but... Exactly. More like funny in the way that like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And then I mentioned ECT, electroconv- electroconvulsive therapy. Mm-hmm. I know you've asked me about this before, so I did look into it more. Fun fact, according to the organization Mental Health America, ECT is administered to about 100,000 people per year. Oh, so it is still used. It is still used. It's used primarily in general hospital psychiatric units, so publicly funded ones or nonprofit funded ones. ECT is typically used for treating patients with severe depression, or we also call it oftentimes treatment-resistant depression. So that means the person isn't responding to medications and therapy. Acute mania, certain schizoaffective disorders. And although ECT is deemed generally safe, one of its main, most common side effects is memory loss, which can range from mild to severe. Okay. I don't know if that's great. I mean, it's like one of those drugs that has like side effects. That yes. Aren't We're at amazing. the end of the commercial. They like rush through all of them. I know, Infertility. Non- <laughs> Non-Americans are probably so confused about what we're saying, but it's... Don't worry, guys. We're confused too. Infertility, blurry vision, death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. But they speed it up. They speed it up really fast. Like, and then when you go and ask your doctor for it, insurance doesn't even fully cover it. So you still end up paying like... out of pocket for this thing that may or may not kill you. Lovely. That's that's a whole nother rant we could go on. Yeah. But we're going to get back to our boy, JC, Jules Cotard. (laughs) Not Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. So, in the late 19th century, Jules, he begins to encounter patients with a unique set of symptoms related to their self-perception. He documented lots of reports um, of, of these patients that he was encountering. And one day, he saw a patient with a 
like notably unusual complaint, right? Like he had seen stuff that was similar, but this person was more um, severe in her complaints. And he referred to her to protect, to protect her identity before HIPAA was a thing. He referred to her in his notes as Mademoiselle X. Wow. That's actually very forward thinking of him. Yeah. Right. Surprising. Also, Mademoiselle X would be a dope band name. Right? Don't. Actually, you know what? If, if any of you guys want to make a band name and, ha- and name yourselves that, please go ahead. Just invite us to the show. Yeah, you have to invite us to the show. That's <laughs> all we ask. So, Mademoiselle X claimed to have, quote, no brain, no nerves, no chest, no stomach, and no intestines. When clearly she did. When clearly she did. Because she's there telling him about this. Right. (laughs) Despite this predicament of believing that she didn't have these um, like vital organs and nerves and things, she also believed that she would live forever, which I kind of get if you're like, damn, I don't have a brain. I don't have nerves, but I'm still here talking. I'm probably immortal. I mean, to be fair, I think most people probably don't have brains, so... Oh my god, babe. <laughs> That's another. <laughs> I'm sure you guys are going to get a kick out of that. <laughs> and since she believed she was immortal, you know, unfortunately due to mm-hmm. this condition, she didn't see a need to eat. Oh no. I mean, it kind of makes sense, I guess. Yeah, right? Again, like she clearly has a delusion, but within her delusion there is logic. Correct. Yeah. She dies of starvation, unfortunately. Okay, lady. Like, there has to be a certain point where you're like, okay, I'm hungry. Yeah. She would report that she was not. That she didn't need to eat. She wasn't hungry, even though the staff were really trying to get her to. Um, so, Cotard's description of the woman's condition, he wrote it up. He published it. And it spread very quickly. People were fascinated by this. And he initially referred to these set of symptoms as negation delirium. Uh, So he publishes the finding of Mademoiselle X as well as other patients reporting not the same thing, but similar in nature of like, oh, I don't have I don't have an arm, you know, my right arm, even though they do. And you can see it. Right. And he's like, it's almost like reverse phantom limb, mm -hmm. like in that case, at least. Yeah. So he started uh, publishing these findings in a series that was called is really long in French. I'm going to try to say it in French, though, just to practice. If you speak French, don't laugh at me. Du délire hypochondriaque dans une forme grave de la mélancolie anxieuse. I'm giving you a standing ovation right now overhead. Right. That was pretty amazing. That was actually terrible. It, in English... It sounds really good. Thanks. In English, that's hypochondriacal delusion in a severe form of anxious melancholia which is what they used to call melancholia was depression. That literally just sounded like a bunch of gibberish to me. Yeah. So even in English, it like even in English, I was like, I don't, I don't even know what that means. You might as you might as well just say the French again. <laughs> it's the same, <laughs> same effect. So hypochondriacal, right? So believing that there is disease in the body when there isn't. Okay. A delusion, which is just things that are not quote unquote true. Like in the perceivable observable world, you are, seeing things that are different in a severe form of anxious melancholia. So she probably, these people probably had some sort of anxiety disorder and depressive disorder. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? That does make sense. Yeah. (laughs) So 
His work laid the foundation for understanding this rare disorder and its association with other psychiatric illnesses. Over time, as he spreads this information, more cases are documented by other psychiatrists and neurologists. And it was initially associated with, again, this severe depression or what they called melancholia. And it became clear that individuals with uh, Cotard delusion often had a distorted perception of their bodies and their existence. So again, thinking, I don't have intestines. I don't have this limb. My leg is rotting. That's a distorted perception. Right. Later on, Cotard also became particularly interested in a different set of conditions, cerebrovascular conditions, um, like strokes, Mm -hmm. what we we would later know as strokes. Um, And he studied this by, you know, just doing autopsies on not just the body, but like taking apart the brain. Oh, wow. At the time. That's very new. Because he wanted to see like what's happening in the physical um, structure of the brain. I mean, he's onto something. He's right. Mm-hmm. He's totally right. In 1869, Cotard leaves the hospital where he was at, and um, the Franco-Prussian War starts. Oh, the Franco-Prussian War, yes. He joined an infantry regiment as their surgeon. He survives, and then he moves to the town of Vonve in 1874, where he remains for the last 15 years of his life. Here, he continues to make a lot of contributions to like different delusional disorders and even um, diabetes. So he was multi-passionate as a doctor. Yeah, wow. In August of 1889, Cotard's daughter contracted diphtheria. And he reportedly refused to leave her bedside for 15 days until she recovered. Oh, good. He contracted diphtheria no, from her. No, I knew that was going to happen. And he dies later that month at the age of 49. What is diphtheria? Son of a nutcracker. I knew you were going to ask and I should have looked it up. I know we don't experience diphtheria anymore. I believe it's been eradicated. Oh, so like hopefully it doesn't it make a comeback. It's some sort of bacterial infection. Let me look. Diphtheria is a serious infection of the nose and throat, easily preventable by a vaccine. Okay. It's when a sheet of thick gray matters covers the back of the throat, making it difficult to breathe. Oh, that sounds terrible. It sounds awful. So luckily, if you get your vaccines as a kid, that's not an issue anymore. But unfortunately for Cotard, it was. Pre-vaccine, obviously. Right. So that was the life of Jules Cotard, but we're going to talk about the condition a little bit more. So I want to share some modern day cases of uh, walking dead syndrome, walking corpse syndrome, the walking dead, the walking dead. (laughs) And no, we're not sponsored by the walking dead guys. Not at all. So in 2013, a man only identified in interviews as Graham awoke after attempting to, quick content warning unalive himself and he um survives this attempt but when he wakes he believes that his brain is dead graham said quote i just felt like my brain didn't exist anymore i kept telling the doctors that the tablets weren't going to do me any good because i didn't have a brain i'd fried it in the bath eventually graham was diagnosed with cotard syndrome 
He said, quote, I lost my sense of smell and taste. I didn't need to eat or speak or do anything. He stated, I ended up spending time in graveyards because that's where I felt I was the closest I could get to death. That's really sad. Right? So he tries to commit suicide and then, you know, obviously fails, but part of him did succeed in his mind, at least. I don't know if he would see it that way. Wow. Graham's case allowed doctors to understand this mysterious condition a little bit better, though, because he did consent to the doctors doing PET scans on him to see what was going on. Oh, yeah. So the treating physician, Dr. Uh, Lorraise of the University of Liege in Belgium, he said, quote, I've been analyzing PET scans for 15 years and I've never seen anyone who was on his feet, who was interacting with people with such an abnormal scan result. Graham's brain function resembles that of someone during anesthesia or sleep. Oh my God. Seeing this pattern in someone who is awake is quite unique to my knowledge, end quote. So basically there was just nothing, like, or very little. You still have brain activity. Well, right. But but, uh, to, but as resembling anesthesia or sleep, your, your brain's actually very active while you're asleep. Yeah, I know you can have, like, especially when you're in REM, mm-hmm. like, your, your brain's kind of going a little nuts. But it's not the same as someone who is, like... Like us right now, talking. Yeah, exactly. So there were no visual, visible structural issues with his brain. But again, it just resembled or mimicked some sort of sedation. Uh, the doctor's theory is that it may have to do with an altered metabolism after his attempt to die, which would give him, quote, an altered experience of the world. He thinks that something metabolic is going on. I don't know what, and I didn't find any further information on that theory. Over time, with therapy and medication, Graham said he managed to shake this zombie-like state. He said, I don't feel the brain dead anymore. Things just feel a bit bizarre sometimes, but I'm not afraid of death, and it has nothing to do with what happened. We're all going to die sometime, and I feel lucky to be alive now. Oh, that's really sweet. Yeah, sounds like he's made a lot of progress. Yeah, so... Did it say what, like, specifically helped him kind of make that progress? Just therapy and medication. Okay. That was all it said. I don't know what type of therapy or or what type of medication. Well, I'm glad whatever, at least it seemed to have worked at least somewhat. Mm Mm-hmm. And then uh, a year prior to this, in 2012, there's another really interesting case. Japanese doctors described a 69-year-old patient who declared to one of the doctors, quote, I guess I'm dead. I'd like to ask for your opinion, end quote. I mean, as a non-medical professional, I think I can weigh in and say that he's probably not dead at that point. Yes. Listen to what the doctor said. <laughs> so the doctor asked this patient, well, do you think that a dead man could speak? Oh, that's a good question. Okay. Right, good comeback, doctor. And the patient recognized that this, like his belief that he was dead did defy logic because he was out and about and speaking, but he could not shake this conviction that he had actually, he was deceased. It took a year of consistent treatment, again, therapy, medication, things like that. But then the delusion passed after a year. Okay. So it was only temporary. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
did it say like how long he had had it before? No, I think it was fairly recent though. Okay. Mm -hmm. This patient said, now I'm alive, but I was once dead for a time. (laughs) So he didn't continue to feel that he was dead, but he wasn't completely convinced that he had not been dead. So he was like dead for a year. He came back and he's like, hey guys, I'm all good now. Yeah, exactly. At least in his mind. So did he, did they ever describe like how they feel? Like what makes them believe that they don't have a brain or like they're dead or whatever? It's just something that they're convinced of. And then they don't, they report, like I mentioned earlier, not having physical needs. Like they don't feel hungry or they don't feel sleepy. That's just absolutely wild. Mm -hmm. These modern day cases I wanted to share because they really... I mean, we have like those firsthand accounts. They really illustrate how even though these people have logic and understanding and are able to like function in other ways, this delusion is really powerful and really severe to convince them that they are partially or wholly deceased. Right. Isn't that crazy? That is kind of insane. So today... Cotard delusion is considered a really complex neuropsychiatric disorder, and it is rare, with only about 200 cases known worldwide. (laughs) That's insanely rare. Yeah. It often occurs, what we do know from the cases that have been studied throughout history, is that it occurs in the context of other mental health conditions, which makes sense. So it's really common with depression, which we saw, uh, bipolar disorder, or schizophrenia. So I would imagine that a way of treating Cotard syndrome is treating those other conditions first. And it's believed to be a result from some sort of abnormalities in the brain, right? Because the person really isn't like requesting food or they're not feeling anything in that arm or whatever it is. So something's going on structurally, I think, Um, or not structurally because There's no physical damage, but something's going on with the neurons there. Right. And they've noticed in the PET scans, um, this like sedation effect, particularly in areas related to self-awareness, which is so trippy. That is, I'm kind of at a loss. I don't even know what to say. So though the symptoms are extreme, most people do get better with treatment. Diagnosis of Cotard delusion is based on clinical evaluation, which is primarily just interviewing the patient. So that means it's really based off the person's self-report. Someone has to share that they're feeling this way. Right. And it's usually diagnosed after doctors can rule out other conditions that look kind of similar. One such disorder is Capgras syndrome which I know lots of people have heard of. It's when a person believes that a friend or family member has been replaced by a fake. Oh, that's terrifying. Terrifying. Could you imagine feeling that, like genuinely feeling and believing this? I mean, there are literal horror movies about that. Right, right. Uh, Capgras syndrome is also, funny enough, it used to be called imposter syndrome. Oh, yeah. Which I think is so funny because now we have such a different association with the term imposter syndrome. Right. That's usually about yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this one can look similar to Cotard syndrome. It just is, again, through those series of interviews that you figure out like, oh, no, they're having these delusions. What about themselves specifically? 
Oh, wow. And even today, it's not clear what causes this. Like, are there any theories? Do you have any theories? No, I would not know the science nearly <laughs> enough. I haven't looked at any sort of scans or anything. Um, we That's do... just how much faith I have in you. That's so I'm like, funny. you must have a theory. No, no. Uh, we do know that it's often a symptom of deeper medical problems like dementia or epilepsy. Like people with these things have higher rates of having Cotard syndrome. Migraines, which I get. Multiple uh, sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, stroke, or a traumatic brain injury. That's one of the other patterns that comes up if someone experiences a traumatic brain injury. Right. I mean, the TBI thing totally makes sense to me. Yes. Treatment today typically involves a combination of antipsychotic medications, psychotherapy, support for other mental health issues, and in some cases, ECT. Oh, look at that. <laughs> it all comes back to ECT. It all comes back to electroshock, baby. Which I still think, like, wow, what an extreme way to treat <laughs> mental illness. And it's like, I guess it does work because you forget stuff. So maybe you forget that you felt this way. So you just forget the bad. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't get I that. have reservations there. So Qatar delusion remains a rare and puzzling condition but it does provide us with really unique insights into the complexities of consciousness and honestly just how little we know about the brain still. Right. Like how are they looking at scans of people feeling this and being like, I don't know what's going on. It means we don't know enough. No, it definitely doesn't. And also instead of Cotard syndrome, can we call it like, like the zombie syndrome? No. Okay. <laughs> I tried guys. I know that sounds way more interesting. I tried. It continues to be a subject of study and fascinations, of course, in psychology and psychiatry. And that, my weird friends, is the history of walking corpse syndrome, also known as Cotard syndrome. Okay, walking corpse. There we go. Yeah. I, I forgot you mentioned that at the beginning. No, that's <laughs> that's really interesting. I honestly had no idea this was a thing before this episode. Yeah. Like I said, I had never heard of it either studying psych in undergrad and then social work masters i'd never heard of this i know it's it's actually fascinating also i didn't know about the the what's formerly called imposter syndrome the clone syndrome or whatever the cap word. grass cap something, yeah, something cut, like that cap cut cap grass cap grass mm -hmm. yeah that i mean that's also terrifying absolutely absolutely terrifying and i want to share my sources for this week webmd national institutes of health mental health america an ABC News article by Katie Moyes, a Mental Floss article by Matt Soniak, and Wikipedia. And since we talked so much about mental health and lots of different conditions, I do want to share a national helpline. It's free, confidential. If you need help getting started with treatment, you can call this number to get free support in English or Spanish. You can call 1-800-662-HELP or one 800 662 Four three five seven. Oh, that's really sweet. That is the social worker within you, hundred <laughs> percent. Just had to mention it. Can't not give a resource at the end of talking about something like this. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So, what do you think? So, it, let me tell you exactly how this happens. And that is how it happens. Wow. I know. You I'm just... going to publish my findings eventually. <laughs> just blew my mind there, babe. <laughs> 
Thank you so much for listening, weirdos. Do not forget to connect with us on Instagram over at History for Weirdos. And until next time, y'all. Goodbye.